Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be able to gather together such as this to worship our Father in heaven. Now to open his word together. I appreciate Beanie reading for us from uh, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. We're actually going to circle back around to that passage by the end of our lesson today. I want us to consider for a little while self-image from a biblical perspective. We live in a self-obsessed world. Uh, We plaster the internet with selfies and have social network pages dedicated to ourselves where we can create our own self-image, self-promote, self-assert, and it seems do just about anything but exercise self-control. The bookstore offers an ever-growing self-help section where we are encouraged to develop strong self-worth and self-respect and pursue self-acceptance. We are urged to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-confident. Commercials and advertisements play on our own self-interests and encourage us to seek self-gratification or self-indulgence. Yet in the midst of all of this, most of us are still searching for ourselves. We are often self-deceived, self-centered, or self-righteous, but instead of finding ourselves, our society is on a road to self-destruct. Just by the sheer amount of words in the English language that are dedicated to self, we can see how central self is to our thinking, to our society. In fact, self is one of the biggest struggles we face as Christians, because as disciples of Jesus, we are called to deny ourselves, to empty ourselves, to crucify and bury ourselves in order that Christ may live in us. And yet when we come out of the waters of baptism, self doesn't just cease to exist. We continue to have to struggle with self. We still have to learn to live with ourselves from day to day. As Christians, how should we view ourselves? As with most topics, I think we struggle to find a healthy balance between two extremes. Often we we vacillate between self-loving and self-loathing. We either exalt ourselves or we degrade ourselves, and we can't seem to find any middle ground between the two. The struggle that we face with self is really at the heart of most mental health issues. Now, I I recognize that the majority of mental health issues don't necessarily stem from a spiritual problem. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world and there are medical aspects to our, our brains, to our bodies, that can be the source of some of these problems that we face. Uh, but often, mental health issues manifest themselves as spiritual struggles as well. Uh, or they're exacerbated by spiritual struggles. And at the end of the day, mental health struggles at very least are a tool within Satan's hands against us. And so we need to make sure that we do consider that struggle from a spiritual perspective, we need to look to the scriptures for the counsel of the great physician. And so I want us to consider today, how should a Christian view themselves? Uh, How does God view us? What is a biblical self-image look like? First, as we approach this question of self from a biblical perspective, we want to start on an encouraging note. And the Bible would definitely uh, tell us that I am valuable. 
If we look at the very beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, we see uh, that we have an immense worth as bearers of the divine image within our souls, that God created us ultimately as the pinnacle of his creation. We see throughout Genesis chapter 1, God creates light. He creates the heavens and the land and sea, the plants and the trees, the sun, moon, and stars, the fish and birds, the animals on land. And often along the way, God stops and it says that God saw that it was good. In verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, God continually looks back on what he's created and says that it is good. But then he creates man in verse 26 and 27. It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And it's at this point in verse 31 that it says, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. God's creation of man as the the pinnacle of creation here was very good. God created us to reflect his image. All of creation declares God's glory. All of creation shows his wisdom, his power, his, his beauty, God created us to be his self-portrait, to reflect his personal characteristics. He gave us minds to reason, language to communicate, a free will to choose, and an eternal spirit that he desires to dwell with him, so that we could shine the light of his glory, so that we could be a mirror of his character. In Luke chapter 12, when Jesus is talking about dealing with worry and anxiety, Uh, He reminds us about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and how God takes care of them. God provides them with food. God provides them with clothing. And he says in that context in Luke chapter 12, are you not much more valuable than they? All that God created, he created with us in mind. We were the reason he created the world. And so in that position that God has given us, we are extremely valuable to him. Now, from an atheistic perspective, uh, we are all just equally products of blind chance. There is no reason for our existence. We're all just accidents. Uh, And so we have no more inherent worth or value than the the plants or the animals, than the, the bug who splattered on your windshield. We're we're all just purposeless vessels of genetic information, accidents of blind chance. But from a biblical worldview, God created all things that we see in this earth with us in mind. In God's eyes, we are not just another part of creation. We are the focus and purpose of his creation. And not only do we see this value that he invested us with in in putting his image within us in Genesis chapter 1, but we see he continues to show us our value throughout history by jealously pursuing us. In James chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, James warns us, You adulteresses, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. God jealously desires the image that he imprinted us with, the spirit that he breathed into us. What sort of things provoke us to jealousy? I have a pin here in my pocket, uh, and it's not anything too special. Um, it writes pretty well. I like it. But if Carl wanted to borrow my pen, that's just fine. He, he can use it. In fact, if he borrows it and never returns it, if he steals this pen, I'm not going to be upset at all. He can keep it. He can have it. I, I have other pens. I can get other pens. However, if Carl wanted to borrow my wife, I would be furious with Carl. If he stole my wife, that would not be okay. Why is that? Well, because of the value of what we're talking about, the value of the relationship. I, I don't have a relationship with this pen. I do have a very close and intimate and valuable relationship with my wife. When God says that he jealously desires us, he's showing the value that he places on us. All of human history shows us that God doesn't view us as some disposable commodity that, well, if that one doesn't work, I'll just get another one. No, he views us as his bride. And he continues to, to try to woo us unto him. And when we're unfaithful, he continues to reach out trying to win back this relationship that he rightly deserves. You remember in Genesis when Jacob uh, works seven years for Rachel. And it says that those seven years seemed but a little time to him because of the love that he had for Rachel. God has spent all of human history courting mankind, reaching out to us because of the love that he has for us. Think of all the time and effort that God has invested in this relationship. And he ultimately paid the greatest price imaginable in order to win us as his bride. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. We're told, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, the price that we're willing to pay for something shows us how valuable that is to us, right? God paid the greatest price imaginable. And while it may sound very arrogant for us to say of ourselves, I think we need to recognize that in God's eyes, we were worth the blood of Jesus. He was willing to pay the blood of his own son because of how much he values a relationship with us. Not that we have inherent worth uh, that would compare to that, but in God's eyes, in the eyes of love, in the eyes of grace, he has placed that type of value upon us. And so creation, all of human history, and the cross testify to us our value and worth in the eyes of God. But I wanted to start off with that encouraging note because 
it doesn't continue to be encouraging from there as we think about self. As valuable as we are, as God created us, as he desires a relationship with us, we are broken. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we haven't perfectly reflected the glory and image of our creator the way he intended for us to do. We have broken that perfect image. We have fallen short of his glory. And so we aren't mirrors of his character. We are broken mirrors. We are ruined paintings. If we want to see the world from God's perspective, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Notice how God, what God sees when he looks down on the world. Paul writes, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Yes, God invested us with great value, but we have all broken that valuable image within us. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at society, look at the world around us and say, yeah, that's right. The world, the world is broken. We need to recognize that's, that's me. I am not righteous. I don't understand. I haven't properly sought after God the way that I need to. I have turned aside. I have become worthless. I am not a good person. Because of my sin, because of my rebellion, because I've turned away what God intended for me, I have broken his perfect image within me. How do we come to terms with our brokenness? How do we cope with our own moral failures? Often, I think what we try to do is, is to shift the blame. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When mankind is first broken, what does Adam do when God approaches him? Well, the, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave to me, and that's why I ate. The woman, well, the serpent, that serpent that, that you created, he deceived me, and that's why I ate. Often the way that we try to cope with sin and with brokenness is, is to find some reason outside of ourselves that we can attribute to why we are broken. That, you know, it's... it's society's fault. It's my inborn tendencies. It's my family, the way I was brought up. It's harmful influences that I've been exposed to. It's a failure of others to guide and support me the way that they should. It's the devil's fault. Well, certainly, we need to recognize all of those things do influence us. What does God say about the source of temptation? James chapter 1 and verse 13 God says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We're first told that God is not the source. Of sin, God is immune to the disease of sin, so if we caught it, we certainly didn't catch it from him. But notice, if we were to ask the question, well, where does temptation come from? 
most of us might say, well, Satan, Satan and his demons, his angels, they're the source of temptation. Well, what does God say here? Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. He puts the responsibility for our sins squarely on our shoulders. He doesn't give us any wiggle room to blame somebody else. And while we may recognize that there are influences, we all have a choice that we've made to follow after our desires, our lusts, contrary to the will of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Sin is not just something that, you know, we've inevitably stumbled into. It's not something that we can't control. It is something we have allowed ourselves to be drawn into and have chosen to seek. It is something of our own devising. We have no one to blame for our brokenness, scripturally speaking, but ourselves. That doesn't sound a whole lot like coping with our brokenness, does it? That just makes us feel more broken. What what we're going to see is the only way that we cope with our brokenness is God's grace. Not by finding some other source of it than ourselves. So if I'm going to see myself the way the scripture pictures me, yes, I'm immensely valuable to God, but I have broken that value. And I am responsible for that brokenness. Not only that, I am poor. I have nothing to offer God to make up for my brokenness and my failure. Turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, starting in verse 9. Here we see that God challenges the Israelite concept of worship and contrasts it with the worship of the pagan gods around them. Starting in verse 9, he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Here the pagans had the concept that the gods really relied on them for their sustenance day to day, that these sacrifices were the meals of the gods. And so if everybody decided to stop worshiping said God, well, then he's going to get pretty hungry. He's going to get pretty angry. He's going to start lashing out. So we better make sure he's well fed so that he doesn't get mad at us. God says, that's not me. I own everything that moves. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need you to feed me. I'm not going to eat these meals. These sacrifices aren't for my well-being. Really, they're for you. And so we need to recognize that there is not a single thing that we possess that isn't already God's possession. We have nothing of our own to offer. Certainly nothing good to offer. First Chronicles chapter 29, you may remember when David is preparing for the building of the temple. First Chronicles 29, starting in verse 14, David says, But who am I? 
And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you. And from your hand we have given you. Skipping down to verse 16. He says, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand. And all is yours. What's amazing about this is this is one of the greatest offerings that Israel has ever brought to the Lord. We, we see David gathers 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of brass, 100,000 talents of iron. By the way, a talent is not a coin. It's a measurement of weight, the amount that, that one man could effectively carry. So when we're talking about thousands of talents, we're talking about tons and tons of these metals. Later on in verse 21 of 1 Chronicles 29, we see that he brings a thousand bulls to sacrifice, a thousand rams and a thousand lambs. And yet, what is David's statement about that offering? Does he say, you know, we have gone to such great expense and given the very best we have to offer because God, you are worth it and you deserve this amazing offering that we're bringing you. And what David says is God here's your stuff back. In fact, um, if it's okay with you, we're still going to keep a little bit of it because we need to live. But, but we're going to give you all of this because we recognize that really everything belongs to you. We need to recognize that, that that's our relationship with God. It's not that we can give him anything that he doesn't already have. It's not that we have anything to offer. God is the one who has clothed us, who has fed us, who has given us anything we possess. And God wants us to understand this. In Revelation chapter 3, as Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, he warns them, he says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves. Here, God wants us to recognize our utter poverty and dependence upon him. We are not self-reliant. We are not self-sufficient. We are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked on our own. We have nothing to offer. Anything of worth we possess does not truly belong to us. Our very souls themselves belong to God. Reminds me of one of the verses in the song, Nearer, Still, Nearer, that we sometimes sing. It says, Nearer, still, nearer, nothing I bring, not as an offering to Jesus my King. Only my sinful, now contrite heart, grant me the cleansing thy blood doth impart. As we said at the beginning, I am valuable, but any value I possess is the value that God has placed there. I have nothing of my own, no value inherent to me. The great immeasurable value that our souls possess is what God has invested them with. I am poor, and more than that, I am small. If we really want to see ourselves as we are, we need to see ourselves against the backdrop of God's greatness. You know, as we live our lives here on the surface of the earth, the earth seems uh, uh, to be a great and immense sphere, right? 
we, we look all the way at the horizon. We, we can't see the boundaries of the Earth from this vantage point. But you go out into outer space, you see pictures from uh, you know, some uh, telescope out in space, and you come to realize that our world is just an infinitesimal grain of sand against the backdrop of the universe. And yet God is greater, is bigger than the universe. We need to step back and get some perspective. In the same way, our lives seem of utmost importance when we wake up every morning seeing through our eyes, hearing through our ears, processing our own personal thoughts and feelings, emotions. Yet when we zoom out and see ourselves in the backdrop of eternity, our personal concerns quickly become utterly insignificant. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to read starting in verse 12. Here he asks some rhetorical questions, uh, and the answer is God. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Do you see this picture of God? Starting in verse 12, it says, He holds the oceans, the, the seas, the waters in the hollow of his hand. Have you ever taken a bottle of water and, and poured it into one of your hands and, and tried to cup as much as you can? Most of it's going to run right through your fingers. But a few little droplets are going to be left in the hollow of your hand. Now think about going to the ocean. Think about the ocean that we can't even reach the bottom of, that you can't see the other side of. God holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. It says he marked off heavens with a span. When you think about outer space, that our world looks so small, it says he measured it with a span. What a span was was the distance between your thumb and your pinky. God measures the universe between his thumb and his pinky. It says the mountains he weighs on the scales. Think Mount Everest. God holds it in his measuring cup. Later on, he says in verse 11, all the nations are as nothing before him. Verse 15, it says they're like a drop in a bucket. Think about the United States, all the people that make up our nation. Think about India, China, Russia, these great nations. God says they are less than nothing and emptiness. If the United States is less than nothing in comparison with the greatness of God, what does that make me? Less than less than nothing in comparison to him. And yet God has invested that less than less than nothing with an immeasurable value. But we need to recognize that on our own, we are utterly insignificant. We are small. The world does not revolve around us, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires. 
we are only a small part of something much, much greater. And fifthly, I am powerless. At the end of the day, we cannot solve our own brokenness. We can't solve our own poverty. Those in Laodicea were told, purchase these things from me so that you may become rich. We can't solve our weakness or insufficiency. On our own, we are utterly inadequate. On our own, we are doomed to fail because God never intended for us to reflect his image on our own. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve were not created to be self-sufficient. Even before brokenness came into the world, God intended that even Adam and Eve walk by faith. Even Adam and Eve listen to his voice, follow his guidance. So from the very beginning of our creation, we were created as dependent beings. Trying to do things on our own is why we became broken. You know, we, we might ask the question, is it possible for man to live a sinlessly perfect life? Is that even possible? Well, I think we need to recognize that even if it is possible for you and I to live sinlessly perfect, it wouldn't be possible apart from God. <laughs> it's not that we could ever accomplish that outside of God to live without sin is to walk in God's ways, is to walk in faith, is to rely upon him, to be dependent upon him. That's the very nature of who we are as created beings. It's not only our brokenness that makes us dependent on him for forgiveness. It is the very nature of who we are that makes us dependent on him for the very air that we breathe, for the life that we live. In Romans chapter 7, if you'd like to turn your Bibles there, Paul comes face to face with his own powerlessness. He recognizes that in the flesh, on his own, apart from God, he cannot live righteously. He cannot live wholly apart from God working within him, apart from following God's spirit. He considers the struggle of facing the law and sin on his own. And what the result is, 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 is a civil war within him, a battle of confusion and hopelessness, a war which he cannot begin to win. I want us to challenge us to read this and try to feel the emotions that Paul is feeling. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, this battle, this struggle is something that any of us can relate to. Starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 7, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Brethren, within ourselves, on our own, we cannot live righteously. We cannot live pleasing to God. Uh, 
we, we might call this passage self-image without God. But for the Christian, this isn't the end of the story. We don't have to have a self-image without God. Notice what he says then in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will deliver us from this body of death? God will. On our own, following the flesh, the flesh is going to lead us astray. We cannot please God living after the way of the flesh. But if we rely on him, we walk in faith, we look to Jesus, we can live righteously. In fact, the very brokenness that we caused can be mended. So I want to kind of bring this full circle. Because I think that the one image that best defines how we should view self is the image of a vessel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, we read, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Yes, we are immensely valuable. In God's eyes, we are worth the blood of Jesus. Why? Not because of this earthen pot, not because of this vessel, but because of the treasure that he has placed within it. We have no inherent strength or value on our own, but we are vessels of God's glory, vessels of his image, vessels of his light. Though on our own we may just be fragile, pottery, poor, weak, and powerless, God has put his spirit within us and filled us with the treasure of immense value and power. With him, that great value we spoke of earlier can be restored. And for Paul, this, this imagery of being a vessel was, was very personal. Back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, God tells Ananias of Saul Go, for he is a chosen vessel or instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Paul was a vessel, an instrument to be used in God's hands for his glory. Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's why Paul's life had value. Because of what was inside, by God's grace, Christ living within him. A man named Dr. Richard Halverson, who was a chaplain to the U.S. Senate, once said, I am a garment which Jesus Christ wears every day to do what he wants to do. I think that's kind of the attitude that you and I need to have. It's no longer we who live. Christ lives within us. We're, we're, we're just the vessel. He's living inside. That's what gives life meaning and purpose and value. And we see the same idea in Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Our self-worth is not a product of our own strength and accomplishment. 
but God's accomplishment within us. We are his masterpiece, his sculpture, his painting. Think about it this way. Uh, the most expensive painting in the world right now is the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci. It was sold back in 2017 for $450 million. But what if I were to ask you how valuable the paint that da Vinci used on that canvas was? What about the, the brush that he used within itself? How valuable was that? How valuable was the blank canvas before he got started? Within themselves, they had little value whatsoever. But because of what the hand of the painter did, now all of that can be sold for $450 million. I'm the paintbrush. I'm the blank canvas. I'm the, the, the paint. But in God's hands, we have immense value. If I'm an instrument for his glory, a vessel for his honor. On my own, I have no value, no strength, no significance, no power, but in the hands of Almighty God, I become part of something of unsurpassing value. And so our highest goal, our highest worth, is found in fully surrendering to his hands. Romans chapter 6, starting verse 12, says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are instruments, we are vessels, we are tools within God's hands. And that brings us full circle to the passage that Beanie read earlier for us, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 20 and 21. We're told now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Brethren, this is the highest goal of the Christian life. That we can be a clean slate for God to work with. That we can be a cleansed vessel that God can use for his purposes. And yes, that requires something on my part. It requires that I prepare myself for his use. But the fact that I cleaned out all the filth that is there doesn't make me valuable. It's the treasure that he places within that makes me valuable. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we presenting ourselves to God in a way that is useful to his work? Are we emptying ourselves, cleansing ourselves, allowing the blood of his son to cleanse us so that we can be prepared for every good work? What kind of vessel are you? Are you sanctified and fit for the master's use? Are you allowing him to exercise full control, to mold your character and your life the way he wants to. On our own, we are broken, we are poor, we are small, we are powerless. But in the hands of Almighty God, we can be something of immense value, of great purpose. Are you allowing God to use you in that way? You know, as, as we struggle with self, we might say, well, I'm just too broken. I'm just too weak. I'm too far gone. I don't have anything to offer God. 
Really? You have so little faith in the power of God that he can't use the pieces of your broken life for his glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. It doesn't matter how broken we are. If we're willing to turn our hearts fully over to the Lord to surrender to him, he can make that brokenness into something of immense value. Are you letting him do that in your life today? If not, won't you allow the blood of Jesus' son to cleanse you? Won't you come to him presenting your brokenness, presenting your sin, that he might remold you? If you're willing to surrender your life to him, to bury the old man of sin in the waters of baptism, you can be raised to walk in newness of light, bearing the image of your creator once again by his grace. Do you need to do that today? If you've made that commitment, but you haven't been living that, know that his grace is continuing to reach out to you. If you are willing to allow him to pick you up, and to begin walking by his side once again. If there's any way that we can help you in your service to the Lord, if there's some public uh, sin that you need to confess, you need to reach out to one of the brothers or sisters here so that we can support you in returning to the Lord, won't you do that today before we leave? At this time, we'll stand and sing together.